Our passage today will be taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 44, and verses 50 to 58. Let me read God's word, and then we'll jump into our sermon. This is God's word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for when trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray one more time before we continue in our sermon. Father, bless us. Help make the truths of the resurrection real and vivid in our lives. We need it, perhaps now more than ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, for Easter Sunday today, we're going to break uh, from our series through the book of Job to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That talks more specifically about the biblical concept of the resurrection. Now, usually we just continue in the book of Job and perhaps maybe highlight themes of the resurrection from the book of Job on Easter Sunday um, because we want to emphasize that the good news of Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection should be able to be preached from every passage of the Bible on every Sunday of the year, not just from particular passages in the Bible in particular Sundays of the year. But we're not going to do that this Easter Sunday. We are going to choose a passage that's uh, more particularly explicit about the resurrection because it seems more prudent and wise that amidst all the sickness and death that we're in to talk about more explicitly of the resurrection. If there's ever a time we need this concept to be clear and vivid to us, it is now. Because of that, this Sunday, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 44 and 50 to 58 that I just read, where Paul thoroughly explains to us the biblical concept of the resurrection. All right, let's, let's get to it. There's three things I want to point out for our passage about the resurrection. It displays God's gracious power. It creates bold realists. And it finds strength from above. It displays God's gracious power, it creates bold realists, 
and it finds strength from above. Let's start with our first point in the beginning of the passage. It displays God's gracious power. Okay, so we're about to study an old passage taken from an old document uh, written to an old civilization talking about old mythical things like the resurrection, right? And it's easy to be quick to judge and say, well, you know, of course, back then, people believed in stuff like this, right? There were older, pre-scientific, uneducated, monocultural societies. Of course, they'll believe in anything they hear and, and, and are exposed to. But before we judge them too quickly, you, you, you got to know that the city of Corinth, the people that Paul is writing to here, they're not filled with uneducated, ignorant people at all. Corinth was actually one of the centers of commerce in that day. It was a huge global metropolis. Rome built it up, so it was filled with modern technology and political power. And then it was filled with academics and Greek philosophers. By the way, Greek philosophy is the bedrock upon which many Western schools of thought now base their thinking upon. So we can't look down on these people. They're not dumb. A bunch of businessmen resided there. And it's not monocultural at all. It was actually very pluralistic. Historians found that there's at least 26 different uh, ruins of places of worship where they worship different gods in Corinth alone. For an American context, historians describe Corinth as New York, L.A., Washington, and Vegas combined in one city. So the people Paul was writing to here were by no means ignorant people, blindly just believing everything they're told. They're critical thinkers. They, they lived in the cutting edge of commerce and academia. And Paul acknowledges that in verse 35. He starts off by preempting a critical question that he knew people in Corinth might have in regards to the resurrection. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? See, Paul doesn't just say, believe in the resurrection or else. You know, he invited them to reason. He, he knew they were critical thinkers. How is it possible, you ask, that the dead raise back to life? Well, Paul starts his answer in verse 36. He says, you foolish person, now, I know that doesn't sound like an answer, but it was. It was actually a very nuanced argument. Let's, let's unpack it. What Paul meant here by foolish is not the way we would use the word today, like we would use that to call somebody as unintelligible. Paul means it in the Old Testament sense of the word. When you read the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs, when you remember who is the wise and who is the foolish, you'll see that the wise are described as people who live their lives with the understanding that God exists. And the foolish are people who live their lives with the understanding that God does not exist. Paul here is using the Old Testament phrase of foolish to ask them a very nuanced question. He's asking, look, remember, what foundational worldview are you working with? Do you believe God exists or not? Now, for this group of people Paul's writing to, it was a church. So the people that read this did work with the assumption that God existed. Plus, a lot like Jakarta today, people in Corinth back then, none of them were atheists. They were religious of, of all sorts and kinds. Everybody at least believed in some kind of power or being or God that created the universe. Okay, Paul is saying, if you believe that God does exist, then be logically consistent. Because if you believe there exists an eternal being who brought life out of nothing in the beginning, then why is it so hard for you to believe that the same eternal being can do the same in the end? Now, 
If you don't believe God exists, well, that's a different story. The concept of the resurrection then is nonsensical. It's not a possibility at all. But Paul is speaking to the Corinthians here, right, a church. If you do believe God exists, you do believe it, don't you? Well, then the concept of the resurrection is a possibility and is within logical reasoning. So that, that's his argument. It all depends on your foundational worldview. Do you believe in the existence of God or not? See, what Paul's saying here is our problem, this is interesting, isn't ultimately with the concept of, you know, the Red Sea splitting in Exodus 14. Our problem isn't ultimately with the concept of the virgin birth in Matthew 1. Our problem isn't ultimately with the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we're studying. If we have a problem with Exodus chapter 14, Matthew chapter 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then our actual real problem lies with Genesis chapter 1 that says, in the beginning, God. Because if we believe in a God who created and controls natural law, it would be within reason to believe that this God could work outside, without, against, or above the natural laws that he created in the first place. You can say he doesn't do it, you can say he won't do it, but you can't logically say he can't do it. You see how nuanced this argument is? Be consistent with your own worldview. That's what Paul is saying. Now, now Paul moves on in his reasoning, and he addresses another question the Corinthians had in regards to the resurrection. They asked, with what kind of body do they come? Why, why go through the decompos, uh, decomposition process at all? Why, why decompose? Why, why, the, why does the dead have to have their bodies uh, uh, disappear and go out into the earth? Why not just skip that altogether and move toward eternity? You know, just skip death and bodily decay. Well, Paul answers them with analogies from nature. Verse 36, 37, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. What Paul's trying to say here is that a seed and a plant has one of the same life, but two different bodies, right? One is simple, one is complex, one is lowly, one is glorious, one is weak, one is bigger and stronger and able to take on the ecosystem that it's in. Let's stick with Paul's logic here. He's saying if a seed wants to survive long-term in the ecosystem that it's in, it must first die and resurrect into a different, stronger, more glorious body as a tree. Then and only then will this seed have the kind of body that can withstand the ecosystem that it's in. And he goes on explaining in verses 39 to 41 that different bodies have different capacities to survive in different ecosystems. Right? For example, fish can't live on land. Humans and animals can't live on water. Neither fish, humans, or animals can live in outer space with the heavenly bodies, meaning the moon and the stars, he says. So what's his point? Let's cut to the chase. This is what he's saying. In order to survive in a particular ecosystem, we need a particular kind of body. If we want to survive in the ecosystem of space near the heat of the sun, our bodies must become different than it is now or else it'll perish. Likewise, if we want to survive in the ecosystem of heaven near the glory of God, our bodies must become different than it is now or else it'll perish. It's got to become imperishable, sturdier, more glorious. And go back to the seed analogy in verses 42 43. How does our bodies turn from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power? Through death. Just like the seed that died and turned into a tree was transferred from weakness to power through death, 
our bodies too will be transferred to a more glorious body, able to live with God through death. See, death, the executioner, someone once said, God has turned into a mere gardener. He's defeated it. He's using it for his own purposes. Now, before I move on, let me just point out that God isn't dependent upon death to do this. It's not like he's not able to do it uh, and he has to wait until we die and then and only then is he able to transform us into this glorious bodies. No, no, no. He's not dependent upon death to transfer us into eternal life. He is choosing to use death to transfer us to eternal life. Why? To display his grace and his power. Grace and power. Remember, death, the Bible says, was not originally something intended by God. Death, if you read Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, is a logical consequence we've brought upon ourselves when we rejected God, the source of life, in our sin. We daily live our lives as if God doesn't exist, right? Our default is to forget he's even there, that he's king, that we should obey him. We constantly ignore his presence and we do whatever it is we want to do. And the man and woman who disconnects themselves from God will die. Just like a flower that disconnects itself from the sun will die. That's just what happens. But yet God, here it is, he uses the consequences of our own sin, death, to instead be the process that delivers us to him. To emphasize that although we deserve death, yet he gave us life. Life is not something sinners have the right to demand from God, but yet he gave it, even to those who would rather be cut off from him. He's gracious. He's gracious. But he also chooses to use death to display his power. Someone once said, a king who is able to use his weapon to gain victory is a powerful king. But a king who is able to use his enemy's own weapon to gain victory, now that displays not just power, but utter dominion. God chooses to use death to win his battle to show not only his grace by turning a deserved curse into an undeserved blessing, but also to show his utter dominion as he utilizes his enemy's greatest weapon to accomplish his own will. That's why he's choosing to use death. You, you believe in a God? Paul's asking. What kind of God is he? Is he gracious? Is he powerful? To what degree? Is he both? See, the God of the resurrection utilizes his opponent's greatest weapon to save his own enemies. You don't get more gracious and powerful than that. God is the God of the resurrection because he's utterly gracious and powerful at the same time. Now, here's what will happen to you if you accept the biblical doctrine of the resurrection, that it's true. Not only will you be drawn to worship this God for his grace and his power, but you'll also become bold realists. Bold realists. What do I mean? Second point. Okay. So if in verses 35 to 44 that we just studied, Paul explains the how of the resurrection. In verses 50 to 56, Paul here describes the when of the resurrection. In verse 50, Paul affirms what he just explained. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? Flesh and blood, our, our bodies as it is now, can't inherit the kingdom of God. Our perishable bodies won't be able to survive in heaven's imperishable ecosystem. God must change it first, okay? But when will this happen? Take a look at verses 51 to 54. And what you see here is that Paul begins to speak in the future tense, okay? He says, the trumpet will sound. The dead 
will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It's all future tense. Now, this makes us realists. How so? I have to admit, I do get a little bit nervous when I hear Christians say things like, if we just enough faith, you know, if we just pray hard enough, if we just worship hard enough, then COVID-19 is not going to get us. If a bunch of us just come together and worship God and believe hard enough, we won't be affected by COVID-19. We'll be protected from it. Now, I applaud the faith that uh, they have in God's promise because they believe God promised it and he'll accomplish it. And that's true. He will. I applaud that faith. But I do want to propose that what the Bible says, this reality of having imperishable bodies, immune from sickness and death and all that, that's all in the future tense. It's not now, not yet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Yes, God promised to do it, and we should hold claim of that promise. Good on you if you do. But pay attention as to when it's promised. Not yet. Look at verses 54 to 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Then, not now, not yet. You see? The Bible makes us realists because if you have a biblical understanding of the resurrection, you're not just going to throw caution to the air and do unwise things like defy medical realities. Doing that is like making huge spending risks with money in a trust fund that you can't access for another 50 years. It's yours, yes, but you can't spend it yet. So be realistic with your spending. See, the resurrection makes us realists. However, let me point out, if some people fail in claiming this promise too soon, I also want to propose that other people fail on the other side of the spectrum in that they don't claim the promise at all. Take a look at the, the, the song that Paul sings at the end of verse 54 to 55. Notice, the whole time he's been speaking in the future tense, but here he switches back to the present tense. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The reality that will come is affecting Paul's emotions now. Do you see? The reality of this future promise to come has current implications in your lives today because we will be raised imperishable in the future. We can ask death now, what can you do to me? If my God is for me, what can you do? So see, in one sense, the resurrection doesn't make us foolish, uncalculated people that take senseless risks as if the promise is ours fully today, but neither do we cower and take no risk at all frozen in fear and anxiety. No, no, no. The resurrection also makes us bold. We become bold realists. You see that? To make this more vivid, Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Christian Reformation, had a quote that I think clarifies this bold realist well. Okay, so he lived during the bubonic plague, and during that time he was asked how Christians should respond in time of this plague. And here's his answer. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. 
If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he is expecting me to do, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy, and does not tempt God. Bold, yet realistic, courageous and cautious, sacrificial and reasonable, all at the same time. This is the result of a proper understanding of the resurrection. I shall fumigate and help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. He realizes the promise is not yet. His body is still uh, able to die now. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. Christians, be realistic. I get the desire to meet and worship physically in person on Sundays to maintain the sanctity of the Lord's day. I get that. But by doing so, you're destroying the sanctity of life. Not only of yours, but others. Be realistic. Do not claim God's promises before it's time. But also, Christian, be brave. If my neighbor needs me, however, Luther says, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above for their sake. Be brave. There are moments that faithfulness will call you to action. Be bold. Stand firm. Sacrifice. Remember, death is no longer an executioner. It's just a gardener. During the viral outbreaks that hit Roman cities in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, everyone fled the epicenters of the outbreak. But you know who stayed? You know who served the sick? The Christians did. Be bold. Because you want to obey God? but not tempt him. Bold realist. That's what believing in the resurrection will do to you. You know, a Christian can argue their theological intricacies of the resurrection from the comfort of their armchair all day. But it's in days like these in which we will know whether or not we truly believe in God's promise of the resurrection. Is it not? It's days like these. How are you living right now? Are you brave? Are you wise? Do you find yourself more to one side than the other? Perhaps, most of us, if you're like me, you fail to do both of those things. At the very least, we all struggle to constantly be both of those things, do we not? We fail to believe in the concept of the resurrection and end up either tempting God or cowering in fear. And look, the solution isn't to just start screaming at yourself, right? It's not to just look at your chest and say, you can do better, you know? You know, it's not giving your will a pep talk. That, that won't do the trick. If you want your faith in the resurrection to become more than just something you can argue from an armchair, but actually a truth that affects how you live while you're surrounded by death, you can't look inward in yourself. If you want it strength, then you've got to look upward to Christ, which leads us to our last point. The resurrection finds its strength from above. Okay, so if in verses 35 to 44, it Paul talks about the how of the resurrection. Verses 50 to 55, Paul talks about the when of the resurrection. Here in verses 56 to 58, Paul focuses on the who of the resurrection. Okay, let's take a look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's take a look at the requirement that one needs to fulfill in order for them to partake in the resurrection. Okay, 
You must obey the law perfectly. That's what Paul says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But why? The image here isn't God as a tyrant, you know, saying, you got to pass this test. If you pass this test, then I'll let you in. No, no, no. The imagery Paul is trying to paint here, the logical connection is much more refined than that. Okay? The, the death that we experience from disobeying God's orders is more like the death that a sick patient will get when they disobey the doctor's orders. Look, if a trained doctor knows more about human life and how the human body works and how diseases work, if, if a doctor that knows all that instructs a sick patient and says, look, this is how your body works. Unless you submit to these biological realities, you're going to die. If the, if the sick patient says, no, 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 me and my Google search knows more than you. I know what the human body is all about. I know medical laws. I know how all these things work. It's not like that. So I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, the natural consequence of that is that the patient will die because we're not more qualified than a trained doctor. When God says, this is how life works, okay? This is how the laws of righteousness, holiness, justice, sin works. I'm a righteous and holy and just God. I can't by nature just let sin slide. These are the realities of life. And unless you submit to these realities, you're going to die. You're going to perish. And if the creature says, no, 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 I know more about metaphysics and the telos of life than you. I know more about ethics and purpose and reason. That's not how things work, God. I know how things work, so I'm not going to listen to your laws. The natural consequence of that is that the creature will die because we're not more medically qualified than a well-trained doctor, nor are we more metaphysically qualified than God. We're stung by death because that's what happens when in our stubbornness we disobey God's laws. The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. And we've all done that. And we all deserve to receive the natural consequences, the curse upon us. So then, what does our gracious and powerful God do? Where is our hope? Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What did God do? There's a very important word in this, in this verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory. It's a gift. How did he give it to us? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one person you see who never sinned. There's one person who obeyed God's orders perfectly. And he should have escaped the sting of death. But yet on a cross, he went through this process of death. Why? He obeyed the law. He didn't die for his own sins. So then whose sins did he die for? Ours. The reason why the grave has no hold over you is because Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrificial offering in your place and jumped into the grave for you. Did it work? Did a sacrifice work? Was it acceptable? Yes, it was. Well, how do you know that? Because he rose again. He obeyed God's laws perfectly, so the power of death had no hold on him. Here's the good news of the gospel. We fail to live like he did in his life. Yet he experienced the curse we deserved in his death so that he can give us the same glorious body he has in his resurrection that allows us to withstand the intense affection that we will eternally experience in his embrace. That's the gospel. The eternal God took on perishable flesh so that 
you may be with him without perishing. You know what death is now? For those who's received this gift, it's like a really big bee without a sting. You might still flinch when it flies by you, but it can't hurt you because it's left its stinger on the body of Christ. Accepting Christ is the way you can partake in this resurrection and keeping your gaze upon Christ is how you're going to increasingly be strengthened by this resurrection truth. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, be obedient. The first word there, therefore, verse 57, Jesus Christ has given us victory. Verse Verse 58, therefore, be steadfast. It's connecting the two. In other words, you want the truth of the resurrection to influence the way you live your life amidst all this death? Then you got to keep your eyes on him. Christ has risen. Therefore, be steadfast. It's not found in you. It's found by you gazing upon Christ and what he's done for you. There's a scene in The Lord of Rings where Sam Ganji, one of my favorite characters, he was stuck in mortar right, which is the middle of the enemy camp, a terrible place, surrounded by orcs, darkness, and death. And he was sleeping in a cave with Frodo. He was tired. He was beat up. He was anxious. He was out of hope. Then at last, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The lamb seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises. Far above the night sky was still dim and pale. But there, Peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Sam was not strengthened by gazing within. He was strengthened because he gazed above. You want to be bold in a time such as this? Gaze constantly to the risen Christ. When Frodo gave up in the end, you remember who kept going? Who pushed through in the midst of all the darkness and all the death? Sam did. Why? Because he was stronger than Frodo? No, because his eyes stayed upon that star. Though here at journey's end I lie, Sam would sing through mortar, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers string and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rise the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. You want to be bold and cautious at the same time? You want to be courageous and realistic, sacrificial and reasonable? You want to acknowledge your current limitations, yet stand firm in the face of death? Then look above. He's risen. Stay your eyes upon him. Never bid him farewell. Claim the promise. It may not be in full fruition now, but one day it will. Since I'm in a Lord of the Rings kick, let me end up with one more quote. (laughs) At, At the end of the book, when Sam woke up from his deep sleep, Tired from his journey, he woke up to the sight of his friends around him. Sam, how do you feel? His friend Gandalf asked. Gandalf, he cried. I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
What's happening to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of company. For days upon days without count, it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out of clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. How do I feel? he cried. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps. I feel like all the songs I've ever heard. Stay your eyes upon him. Never bid him farewell. Therefore, live boldly, live realistically, claim the promise. It may not be in fruition now, fully, but one day it will. He's risen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for either claiming your promises too early and therefore living foolishly, living in such a way that is not in line um, with sense. But Father, also forgive us for often forgetting your promises were given by you at all to where we cower in fear and we are frozen in anxiety and we are so set upon our own well-being that we forget other people in whom we were meant to serve in a time such as this. I pray that you make the reality of the resurrection realer and more vivid to us through this passage that we just studied so that we'd be emboldened and encouraged to live more boldly and more reasonably at the same time. Will you do that for us, Father, wherever it is that you find each of us swinging the pendulum to Help us, make us bolder, make us wiser, make us braver, make us more realistic. Help us live faithfully to you and give up and sacrifice whatever it is you're calling us to, to serve those who are in need, because you gave up your life to serve us in our deepest need. Thank you for your gospel. Death, the executioner, is now just a gardener. In Jesus' name, the one who died, that we may live. The one who resurrected, that we may have new bodies in him. In his name alone we pray. Amen.